This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, how long are you planning to stay on Mars? Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review critique show putting the humanities back into science fiction. I am Gepwin and I'm joined as always by a friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week is episode 100. Bum bum bum! Let's do a little dance, Gepwin. Wow, we've been doing this for quite a while. <laughs> are, are you dancing? Yeah. I'm sitting down, <laughs> so it doesn't look good, but... <laughs> Uh, you, know, you know, you can move your arms and that counts, you know. Anyway, 100 episodes. We've been putting out like one a week with occasional breaks, which means we've been doing this for like two years, which I didn't think about until right now. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, we're on the long haul here. We're like committed and should be committed or something like that, right? Yeah, probably should. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. I I kept racking my brain for movies to do because we do the 10 episode movie thing and it's episode 100 and oh my god um i couldn't think of anything particularly poignant or epic so i just decided let's go with one of the like all-time kind of pulpy 80s sci-fi classic movies so this week we're going to be covering the 1990 version of total recall so, uh, as uh, Hot Shots Part 2 uh, described uh, before it came around, uh, you know, potentially the bloodiest movie of all time. Yeah, I'd forgotten that. Though, I will say, the the way that they've done color grading in, you know, it came out in 1990, but of course that means the entire thing was made in the 80s, so it's definitely an 80s action flick. Uh, the way they did color grading on movies in the 80s and early 90s makes everything look so oversaturated and unrealistic the blood effects don't actually don't actually look real enough to bother you yes it's like well this is almost cartoonish but that's fine (laughs) i was watching this dang movie i'm like oh my god colors i'd forgotten movies used to have colors in them yes (laughs) don't see that very often anymore (laughs) no everything's mostly red but still well, it is on mars (laughs) (laughs) which is the only thing that we knew about mars until recently and and Mars just looks like Utah now. Yes. <laughs> like they built exterior oh, yeah, sets and wrong. colored everything red. And they could have filmed this like in like three parts of Colorado, most of Utah, four places I can think of in Arizona. <laughs> so in other words, uh, going to uh, Tunisia to, to film so- uh, Star Wars is perhaps, uh, you know, overkill. Yeah. For, uh, finding yourself an alien planet. Yeah, I think so. Because our, our current images, it's not, it's not that red. It's more really light orange. It's like Oklahoma. Yeah, there's plenty of deserts in the in the American like uh, West here that that are this color. It's just it's just iron rich sand. You don't need to like. It's not dyed. Yep. <laughs> it's not crimson blood red. <laughs> but anyway, it's more interesting if it's crimson blood red. So yes, it also fits with the uh, the theme of the, the ultraviolence. Yeah, which is nice. And the whole thing is just just set up well that way. Okay, so this, uh, I I don't know why. I had a brain fart last episode when I was setting this up, and I said it was based on a story by the same name, which is not at all true, because Philip K. Dick doesn't make stories with easy, punchy-to-remember names. True. He doesn't just know. Uh, uh, The original story was uh, We Can Remember It for You Wholesale, correct? Yes, a Philip K. Dick short story from 1966. 
Uh, one of my short stories can become this uh, uh, successful. I'll be happy. Now, this is a inspired by, which means they took yes. one basic premise from the short story and ditched the rest of it because the short story is like silly to the extreme. So we're, <laughs> we're better off here. Uh, some, there is some silliness in this film, but uh, not to the extremes. More believable silliness than yes. <laughs> we can remember it for you wholesale. So something about tiny dormouse aliens that could destroy the world. Cool. Wait a moment. Isn't that the giant guide? Mm. Oh, no, they built the world. Sorry. Uh <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this movie was directed by Paul Verhoeven, who was just did these things. Uh, well known for RoboCop and Starship Troopers. Uh, Hollow Man. A bunch of other random stuff I've never not heard of. Yeah. Um, this is just very much his oeuvre, I guess. You yeah, say. The, the, good, the description that I found that I just liked to sum this up quite well was well known for gory, sexy, social commentary movies. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I think that's about sums it up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, of course, because this is an actual like full on Hollywood production with like three people who worked on the screenplay. Uh, Ronald Sunset, uh, who was one of the writers of her Alien and Aliens, amongst other things. Uh, Dan O'Brannon, who worked on Alien as well, also written, directed Return of the Living Dead and did some of the computer animation for Star Wars. And Gary Goldman, whose most notable work is Big Trouble in Little China. It's a little different than this movie. Yeah. In fact, uh... Have I actually seen the entirety of Big Trouble in Little China? I don't remember. I don't think I like have. Half the movie, at least. <laughs> it's not sci-fi, so we'll probably won't cover it up on our show, but <laughs> maybe if we ever do a, a divergence. <laughs> it's kind of a... I mean, it's not sci-fi. It falls into the sci-fi fantasy thing, but... <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a whole lot of actors uh, this week, uh, mm-hmm. and like at least four of them have showed up on Star Trek, so... <laughs> I know. I'm just... I'm going to go through the main cast, and I've got some like minor inclusions. So, of course, uh, this enti- everyone knows Total Recall stars Arnold Schwarzenegger as Douglas Quaid. Are you sure it's Quaid? Is it not Quail? <laughs> oh, no, I'm making a reference to, to, to a plot twist later. Okay. <laughs> In the original book, he was named Quail. Quail, oh yeah. Then uh, this, this name did not copy out properly. How the heck do I say her last name? I never looked at this before. <laughs> Rachel Tick Ticket. Tone. Ticketin? Ticketin. The Terratin. Wait, no. Sorry. <laughs> Rachel Ticketin, I think, as Melina. I've never had to pronounce her last name before in my life, so I apologize. Uh, Sharon Stone as Lori, who is Quaid's wife, allegedly. <laughs> Michael Ironsides as Richter, that guy you've seen in all the tough guy roles from movies of this era and later. And Ronnie Cox as Cohegan, the guy that you've seen as every evil angry businessman from this era of movies and later or evil senators or starship captains come on that's true yes he was in star trek as a star not evil just different but arguably yes. inferior <laughs> command style well he was sort of painted as the bad guy i'll say <laughs> i do like well he was the like hard hard line leader that they contrasted with picard's more like down-to-earth, like, friendly leadership style, and they contrasted the two and showed why the one actually works better. And then just a couple of other uh, random inclusions, just just because I thought it was fun. Uh, We have 
Uh, Roy Brocksmith, who played two characters in Star Trek, one in Next Generation and one in DS9. And Dean Norris, who have just been noticing in freaking everything. <laughs> he's best known for his role in Breaking Bad yes. at this point. But he's just everywhere. Once you start looking for him, he's just everywhere. <laughs> Wait a moment, what's that guy again? Holy smokes. And this time he's under a lot of makeup. So I was like, wait, is that 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 sounds like him? Yes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it is kind of a minor role here. Uh, speaking of minor roles, uh, there's Everett, played by Mark Ame- uh, Alamo, um, probably not pronouncing correctly, who is also known as uh, Gold Dukat on uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Oh, yeah. Yes. I didn't even notice him. <laughs> Everett was, uh, which one was Everett? Oh, yeah, he was the... Uh, he was... Like the cop uh, on Mars uh, leader sort of person. Yeah, like, that guy. Victor, don't kill us all, please. <laughs> <laughs> so this this is one of those like movies that proves the rule of there are six science fiction actors. Kind of. And they're just <laughs> in, in every sci-fi movie, especially in the 80s. And then, of course, since the you know mid-80s to early 90s or when they were making Star Trek The Next Generation, all of them showed up in Star Trek The Next Generation. Yes. <laughs> Makes me really, really wish that just, just, I know they wouldn't have been able to afford it. So he was the biggest action movie star of the period. But like, I really want Arnold Schwarzenegger to show up as a Starfleet captain and next gen, just like, or an admiral, just like. <laughs> Make it so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, there's a lot to cover. And then this is actually a weirdly deep movie. So there'll probably be a lot to cover later too. <laughs> Indeed. So let's get rolling. It is like the deepest mindless 80s action movie. It's like you you don't notice all the stuff that's actually going on because of all the the, the, you know, the, the kicking and the gunfighting and the, uh, oh my God, we're running from things. Yeah. It's Mars. It's big and it's red. And two people, one of whom is Schwarzenegger shaped and one, a brunette woman, both in spacesuits, walk along a ridge overlooking a large red mountain, which I kept thinking was Olympus Mons, but it's apparently not. Yeah, Olympus Mons is bigger. Yeah. Also much wider. Also t- also kind of hard to like tell you're on a mountain. Yeah, because it's just <laughs> so big. <laughs> it's like a, the, lar- the, uh, the solar system's largest is it. And I want to be really clear for anyone who hasn't seen this movie. When I say everything is red, everything is red. There's, there's red dirt, red on the spacesuits, red filter on the screen. It is, it is an aggressively red movie. Yes. <laughs> Especially on Mars. So the ground gives way under the man and he falls with his helmet cracking open, exposing his head to the apparently vacuum that exists on Mars. And his eyes and tongue and stuff start expanding horrifically. Just before his head explodes, Quaid wakes up screaming in his bed. Oh, so it was all a dream. Yep. Now, this movie's set in the future, so possibly whatever they did to colonize Mars stripped it of its atmosphere. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I should point out that uh, the uh, the pressure on Mars isn't that low that it would cause stuff like that to happen. Also, that kind of stuff doesn't quite happen even in actual vacuum, but, you know. <laughs> but it looks cool and gory, and they made that, they must have made like 20 Arnie head models for this movie, and they're going to yes. use them. <laughs> so uh, we got some spare Arnie heads. Uh, what should we do with them here? Uh, I know, exploding eyeballs. <laughs> His wife, Lori, tries to comfort him over what is apparently a reoccurring dream of going to Mars. Also teases him about how he's always dreaming of this same one woman. 
Uh, turns out Mars is a bit of an obsession for him as he mentions moving there over breakfast despite the news report talking about how Mars is incredibly dangerous with terrorist insurgent activity apparently commonplace and mines closing down because of alleged alien artifacts and that maybe things aren't that much better on Earth because apparently there's a long-standing war between the northern and southern blocks and a mineral found on Mars is apparently super crucial to the war effort, which is why anyone cares. So uh, apparently, uh, you know, Mars is being the, uh, the exploitation point for uh, to keep the war, the forever go- war going on here on Earth. Huh. Also, uh, the all the, the violence there uh, that's commented that uh, with you know as we pan over you know piles of bodies that uh, that a minimal use of force was applied to uh, put down the, the uprising. There's commentary in this movie. It's like it was made by the yeah. guy who did RoboCop <laughs> or something. Laurie's down on the idea of going to Mars and tries to convince Quaid to just be content with their life here, which they apparently moved to quite recently, and he's got a new job and is just getting used to things. Yeah, getting used to West Texas here. It's fine. Quaid takes the future subway to work, including a future metal detector uh, that live x-rays everyone walking through. I don't know what kind of security they need here. Like, I've never been even anywhere near a metal detector to get to the subways in New York. So, uh, I guess... You know, with the war going on and uh, fears about, I don't know, bars spilling over here to stuff. I, I don't know. <laughs> also, it could be a, a sort of a situation like in uh, uh, Demolition Man, where everyone's just like, yeah, every, everything should be super fine. And then that one time, and now everyone's super paranoid. On the train, a video monitor plays ads for a service called Recall, a place that will give you the memories of any vacation or adventure you like for a fraction of the price of going on the trip yourself, including an exciting trip to Mars. Dun, dun, dun. Hmm, this might be alternative to actually going. Huh. At his job as a super ripped construction worker, which is one of the few times they've had Arnie in a movie that tries to justify why he looks like this and he's not just a normal office drone. Yes. <laughs> They could make him a bodybuilder. There's no reason bodybuilders can't exist in future things. They, they couldn't just cast sure. him as like, he's a bodybuilder who also got into this wacky adventure. Well, yeah, there are there has been times where uh, he has very much played into tropes. Like, well, you're playing Conan the Barbarian, so you go around and hit people all the time. Okay. That is true. Now you're playing Hercules. Same thing. <laughs> Quaid asks his co-worker Harry if he's heard of this recall thing, and Harry thinks it's a remarkably bad idea because he knows a guy that went and got himself lobotomized, and you shouldn't screw with your brain. Seems like pretty good advice. All right, so let's uh, not go then. Thanks, Tony. Harry is pretty suspicious of Quaid's interest, giving him, like, side eyes and stuff the whole time, which is apparently justified because Quaid doesn't listen at all and goes to an appointment that he made at recall after work. I guess you didn't change your mind at all after your advice about, you know, not getting your head cracked open. The receptionist has a really cool thing that I kind of want that's a little pen stylus that changes the color of your nails just by touching it. Look neat. That's all, yeah, that's so awesome there. It's little details like that that really kind of bring this movie from being, you know, pretty dang good to like kind of fantastic. It's like there's just some of random world building. It's like not important, but here's something that's very futury that we're just going to throw in there. Like between that and like the makeup camera from Fifth Element and stuff, where are all these massive advances in makeup technology we're supposed to be getting? Uh, I guess we have to wait until the 22nd century. Quaid meets the recall salesman who talks up how realistic their memory implants is, and you won't know the difference between this and the memories of any real vacation you ever had. 
the salesman tries to upsell Quaid with an interesting proposition that you could go on vacation as someone else. Not just boring old you, but a billionaire or interstellar playboy or the one that catches Quaid's eye, a secret agent. Dun, dun, dun. Secret agent man. It's the story of a man who's deep undercover on a mission of world-saving importance with gunfights, beautiful exotic women, and not to spoil too much, but in the end you get the girl, kill the bad guy, and save the world. Oh, that sounds like a plot to a movie. Which really does kind of spoil the ending, but you know. <laughs> Uh, Quaid gets hooked up to a futuristic chair-looking thing to get his memories implanted. The doctor starts interrogating him uh, about stuff that he wants to do while he's uploading the program, which shows, like, alien ruins and two-headed monsters and all sorts of cool adventure stuff that we won't see verbatim later. There are are some some weird folks we run into later, but... uh... I guess only technically one of them has two heads. Uh, she gives him a sedative and starts asking questions about his sex life, which I did like that this is just a standard question. This is like sexual orientation, hetero, and the, like they they don't even say straight. It's so normal here. It's great, yeah. <laughs> which is weird. Like this is a freaking movie from the 90s. You don't expect that. What 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 are, what sensibility is going to be in the future? Well, um, not awful. Okay, that actually kind of makes sense. Yeah. So he describes his perfect woman as like fit and brown hair, demure and sleazy, which is a weird combination, but okay. And the computer generates the woman literally he was dreaming about. Dun dun dun! That's a, quite a coincidence, huh? Time for the brain bit on it. So a little while later, we're still at recall, and Quaid is having something called a schizoid embolism, which I guess is something that can happen. I'm just shrugging here. <laughs> He's just freaking out in the chair doing. Arnold noises. According to the doctor, they couldn't complete the implant because Quaid seems to already have memories of Mars. Well, that's weird. Huh. The doctor injects him with several more doses of sedative until he stops struggling. The doctors are really freaked out because if he's already got suppressed memories, it's probably the agency, whatever that is. And then they decide that that's not their problem. Wipe any records of him ever being here and dump him in a taxi and head back home. And uh, don't forget to uh, erase his memory so he doesn't remember being here. Though it's not really important. Uh, Quite awakes confused in a cab driven by an annoying robot guy who is no help in figuring out why he's here. Uh, an annoying robot guy that's also voiced by Robert Picardo. <laughs> <laughs> it's just everybody in this movie. Yeah, the, the doctor from uh, Voyager. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. Older movies really anticipated the way modern voice activated electronics would work. We try to like think that they're going to be great in the future now because the ones we have have smoothed out some road bumps. But it's just like, what what the heck is going on? I didn't understand that question. <laughs> but how did I get here? The door opened and you entered. <laughs> <laughs> so Quaid arrives at home and Harry is there waiting for him. Harry wants to buy him a beer and he's really insistent about it, even pulling a gun and bringing three other guys to escort him. Well, this must be a really important beer uh, if you're going to be taking me at gunpoint to it. I hope it's really good. So they uh, bring him to a secluded spot where Harry tells Quaid he's mixed up in something too big and he's about to shoot him when Quaid goes all action movie and kills all four of them before he realizes what's happening. Wait a moment. Are you secretly Jason Bourne? When he gets home, his wife is practicing tennis with a hologram. It's kind of fun. Uh, Quaid runs in, turns off all the lights, and tells her that there are people trying to kill him. She's skeptical, but he... 
shows her the blood all over him and goes to wash off. When he returns, a shadowy figure starts shooting at him out of the dark room. Quaid dodges, throws a chair at the attacker, yelling for Laurie to get out, tackles the gunman, and realizes when the lights come on that it actually is Laurie who's trying to kill him. Dang it, Laurie. We're not... This isn't how we agreed to do this whole, like, danger play. Come on. They fight to a standstill. Uh, Laurie is disarmed, and then when they sit down, she explains that actually she's not really his wife. They've only known each other for about six weeks. Everything else in the past eight years of marriage and jobs and whatever is just memory implants, and she's here to look after him. Then why are you trying to kill me? Come on. She starts a flirt with Quaid, but he realizes it's just to distract him from the door monitor that shows several scary armed men approaching the apartment. Oh no, it's Michael Ironside and his crew! Run! Yeah, he does run, just as Richter and his men come into the apartment. Uh, they are apparently working with Lori, and apparently Richter's in a relationship with her. That's not particularly important, it's just in there for some reason. Well, it gives Richter some motivation to be really kind of unhappy with Quaid here, just in general, and maybe prone to more violence against them than maybe otherwise uh, warranted. This bugs me because it, they didn't need it in here. They do kind of use it as a like, oh, well, your your girlfriend or wife or whatever has to live with this hot guy. Aren't you jealous? But weirdly, it's like it is one of the more sexist things in this movie. Strangely the- enough, because the, like, I'm not saying it's perfect, but it, it's actually a little bit better with some of its female characters most of the time. So this is actually kind of stands out. Well, I guess maybe he's also the bad, one of the bad guys. So being kind of a you know, craphead about this is kind of in character. Yeah, but just the way that they introduce it as motivation, because they made a choice about this. It's not like he's a real bad guy. Oh, he is a real bad guy. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, <laughs> I, I get what you mean. <laughs> Richter and his crew uh, use a tracking device to follow Quaid into the subway, where they get flagged by the x-ray thingy as having guns, and this just starts a gunfight. Quaid jumps through the x-ray glass, breaks the window of the subway train, uh, just while it's still moving and escapes them that way after like there's a bunch of stuff there's an escalator fight and human shields and civilian casualties but, you know that's not necessary and, and uh, no one's calling the actual cops apparently no no one calls cops the, the entirety of this movie then again some of the cops are kind of well especially the ones on mars Maybe not ones you want to call anyway. Richter returns to his car where he gets a call from Cohagen, the head of Mars. Also, Cohagen is spelled with two A's, which really threw me since I had to write this script. It doesn't make any sense, but it's not like Copenhagen, but like different. He wants Quaid to be taken alive, which pisses off Richter and he pretends to get sunspot interference to end the call. So Richter is apparently pretty committed to not doing that. Yes, um, yes, I'll uh, I'll for sure go, what was that? I didn't get that last bit here. Uh, you want me to do something? Bye. Quaid takes a quiet moment in a cheap hotel to recover, but is almost immediately gets a phone call from a man he's never seen before, but apparently knows. He tells him to wrap a wet towel around his head, because this will apparently interfere with the tracking device. Uh, and he shows that the call is coming from just outside the window, and tells Quaid he's going to give him a suitcase that he was told to return to him if this particular very unusual situation ever arised. Oh, this is mighty convenient. Thanks, you random person. He leaves the suitcase by the phone and runs off. Quaid now with a towel wrapped around his head in a really well-tied kind of turban style. He knows what he's doing. Uh, He goes outside to grab the case just as Richter and his men drive up. Uh, Quaid jumps into another automated cab to escape when the cab refuses to drive just anywhere, you know, like a robot would do. Because you can't tell an automated robot to just drive. Uh, take me to the state capital. Yeah. 
go. So he breaks the robotic driver and grabs the controls himself. He escapes and crashes the cab very lightly into the side of a wall, which causes it to explode. Well, uh, uh, that's a little awkward, but maybe it's Johnny Cab getting his revenge for, uh, you know, being ripped out of his little spot there. He is now in an abandoned construction area with lots of rats. Just so many rats. They're just hanging out. He can become the Rat King now. Hooray! Here he gets into the case where he finds a first-class ticket to Mars, some red Mars bucks. Again, red stuff. Several fake IDs, a gun, a weird-looking gun, and a little watch that projects a hologram of himself a few yards away that matches his current movements. Also, a video screen that starts playing him a message from himself. Dun, dun, dun. Hello, Hauser. Yes, the message identifies itself as Hauser, who used to work for Cohagen, but then he met a woman that showed him he was working for the wrong side, and he switched sides to the Martian resistance, and he's got enough information in his head to take Cohagen down for good, but they erased his memories, and now, since uh, Quaid is here, it seems that Cohagen has gotten to him before anybody else can. This is awkward. Um, you don't know what's up, and people are trying to kill you. And now you only have part of an explanation of why. Yep. Now Quaid has to do that one thing that everyone remembers as a line from this movie. Uh, stick the thing up your nose? No, he has to get his ass to Mars. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he also has to stick a thing up his nose and remove an improbably large glowing red ball out of it. It's apparently the tracking thingy. Yes, this ball's kind of huge, and it's like, how would you... You should have breathing issues if you have that something that big in your sinuses. Yep. Maybe he just has constant headaches. That's why he doesn't think it's weird that it's so hard for him to remember things. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so constant headaches, and maybe this this weird pounding is uh, helping uh, keep you know stir up his memories about Mars and things like that. And he's just a complex. He doesn't know there's all these terrible things going on all the time. So he takes the tracking device and shoves it into like a bar of food and throws it to the rats. Just as Richter just arrives up because they detected the explosion from the car. Uh, Quaid runs and Richter starts shooting rats as a distraction before uh, finding and destroying the tracker. Rats, foiled again. (laughs) And then they see the video, which is repeating that they get their ass to Mars. Later, a ship arrives on Mars. A woman holding a familiar-looking case is going through immigration as Richter and his men push by. The woman is about to get through just fine when she starts repeating herself and freaks out a bit. Two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. This draws Richter's attention, and the woman's head breaks open to reveal Quaid. It's a super disguise. Done. Completely realistic fake face head. He throws the fake head to some guards where it explodes. Hooray! And they open fire at him, but instead break a window to the outside, which, remember, is a vacuum, and starts sucking all the air out of the room. So, uh, I guess this kind of begs the question of, if this is like a, a general thing you have to worry about on Mars, then why does anyone have any actual real guns? Mm-hmm. Or windows. Or... Yes, or yeah, or... yeah, they could get better windows, too. <laughs> also, the safety system that, like, closes off the outside when this happens is... Necessitates that you hit a really big red button on one of the desks while you're, like, flying around in, you know, old sci-fi style as the air gets sucked out of the room. Yes, on safety first. So they hit the button, it immediately slams shut all the windows so that they can run around, and very slowly slams shut the door so Quaid can escape. Yes, you got you have to have priorities here. Windows first, then door to escape. Quaid takes a Mars train to the Mars Hilton. The, the 
branding in this movie, the brand deals in this movie. You've got Mars Hilton. You've got Mars Jack in the box. This is <laughs> Mars everything. It's amazing. Also, I didn't realize this until I moved to the East Coast. Jack in the box is apparently exclusively a West Coast thing. So apparently it is West Coast and Mars. So uh, Mars is now on the West Coast. Yes. <laughs> Makes sense. Uh, also, uh, speaking of branding, I should point out uh, one kind of funky detail uh, that on Earth, the product placement for soft drinks is Coca-Cola. On Mars, it's Pepsi. Ooh, that's how you know. It's just a different culture up there. <laughs> that is a good detail. I didn't notice that. So on the train, he hears about how the company keeps raising the price of air and doesn't care about the little people. And he talks to a miner who used to work at the Pyramid Mine before they found those rumored alien artifacts. He goes, that's just a rumor. Is it? Is it? Is it, man? Uh, Quaid checks into his hotel, where he apparently left a safety deposit box. He finds a flyer for a strip club called The Last Resort in a place known as Venusville. On the back, he has written, For a good time, find Melina. Right. Well, this, this handwriting looks familiar. Yeah, he asks to borrow a pen and writes the name, and it's this exact same handwriting. Dun dun dun. I wrote this to myself. And it must be, because he draws his M's really weird. Yes. <laughs> Outside, Quaid is accosted by a cabbie named Benny, who's super enthusiastic and apparently has five kids to feed. So, he snipes somebody else's fare, but, you know, all's fair in cabs. Yeah, don't worry, there's about to be a little firefight over yonder. Uh, yeah, they leave as soon as there's, like, an insurgent gunfight, and everyone acts like this is normal. Dang it, we're gonna get shot again. <laughs> now, Venusville seems to be the Martian Red Light District. It's filled with unsavory types and mutants and people who were exposed to too much radiation and bad air. I guess that's what happens when you have for cheap dome construction. In the bar, we see an interesting array of people, including uh, the famous three-breasted woman, and eventually Melina, who's like... I mean, that is kind of crummy. They have a lot of really interesting, like, people with mutations and, like, other things in here, and then, like, the one normal-looking woman is the hero like well yes <laughs> well maybe she has like uh i don't know a portal to another dimension on her back melina is the woman from quaid's dream full on oh well, this is mighty convenient weird all right melina uh we're apparently supposed to hang out together what's up melina is really glad to see quaid but thinks he is hauser uh quaid tries to explain that he has no idea what's going on and he's just infuriates Melina because she won't listen. I mean, it's a bit weird, but he's also very bad at explaining. Hey, well, I guess that situation, I'd be kind of bad at explaining, too, because uh, people trying to kill me. There's weird re Martian resistance uprisings going on just kind of wherever. And I've just met mutants for the few t uh, first time, so I might be a little unsettled here. So uh, she kicks him out, and he has to return to his hotel. Well, that sucks. Uh, I guess he came to Mars for no reason. So that night, Cohagen announces on the news that he's declared martial law, and he will find this mysterious rebel leader named Kato. Quato. Quato. Keep pronouncing it Kato. It's Kuato. Kuato. And bring him to justice, which I guess he means kill him. Yeah, Cohagen, uh, if he wants something from someone, it's either that they, he wants them alive or wants them dead. Kind of nowhere in between, really. Well, are there other choices? <laughs> not really, but not with Cohagen. <laughs> Uh, Quaid's night is interrupted by a knock on his hotel door. It's the doctor from Recall, who apparently isn't really here, as he claims neither is Quaid. Uh, they're both just sort of in his brain because he's still in the dream chair thing. Uh, he had an embolism uh, in the Recall lab, and 
His mind is now trapped in a delusion based on his memory implant. Oh, this is awkward. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Edgemar, uh, are you going to like, uh, you know, explain how to get out of this weird dream situation or, uh, you know, maybe the full remaining plot of the movie or something like that? Uh, go. <laughs> Eventually. So that's why everything is playing out as they, you know, outlined earlier in the office. And he's like, how yeah. likely is it that you are having a dream or that you really were just a undercover secret agent? Yeah, it does kind of uh, stretch uh, plausibility here, as well as you just kind of being here. Quite, because I know this is real, because I dreamed of this woman I just met. Oh. Oh, well then. Uh... <laughs> the doctor also brings in, apparently, the projection of his wife, Lori, who's here to convince him to come back, because they didn't actually fight or any of the other stuff. Like, you know, it's fine. You're just having a weird dream. Yes, and so things don't have to make sense. The doctor gives him a pill that he says is a symbol of his want to return to the real world that will make him fall asleep and he'll just wake up in the recall office. I'm, I'm sensing a, a, a predestination uh, Matrix reference here. Uh, never mind. Never, don't worry about it. Uh, Quaid threatens the doctor with a gun, but the doctor's like, well, if you kill me, you won't be able to leave. I mean, no difference to me. I'm not really here. Yeah, so uh, if you want, it's really up to you if what you want to do here. Uh, good luck. So Quaid's about to swallow the pill when he sees that the doctor, who's not really there and is not supposed to be under any particular threat, has broken out in a nervous sweat. Wait a moment, maybe you're just dreaming the sweat. No, that can't be. So Quaid shoots the doctor in the head. Oh no, edge bar. Immediately there's an explosion and several men jump through the newly blown hole in the wall and capture Quaid and drag him off to the elevator. Uh, when the elevator arrives, though, Melina is there with a gun and shoots everyone. Hooray, Melina! Uh, except Lori, because they have to have their, like, 80s woman fight. But uh, I will say that it is uh, not like a cat fight of the normal sort, but, like, they're actually kicking each other's asses. It's yeah, kind of this is interesting. This is, like, an interesting phenomenon of the dumb 80s action movie. Because you still, you had, like, the, I can only call it the, like, female business person archetype with the like suit and padded shoulders and they just go at each other but not in like a sexy way like this is something that they introduced in 80s action movies where it's just two very competent adult professional women fighting each other and so they fight <laughs> as opposed to being you know this, you know, a, you know a male gaze sort of thing it's like no we're gonna have an action scene here and it's gonna be an action scene so Quaid gets a gun and shoots Lori. just she's about to stab Melina with a knife uh, the parents escape, jumping to a walkway along the side of the dome where the pursuing Richter and his men can't really shoot them for fear of breaking the glass and killing everyone. Aha! So uh, if you kill us, you also die a lot, as well as everyone else here. They get Benny to drive them back to the last resort as they are chased by Richter. Uh, they escape into a back room hidden tunnel just as Richter and his men start shooting up the place. But Cohagen orders them to evacuate because he's just going to seal up Venusville and turn off the air pumps. Well, that's kind of a dick move. So everyone in Venusville is slowly suffocating. Well, uh, hopefully we can finish up the movie before they uh, all die. So Quaid, Benny, and Melina escape through one of the closing airlocks and arrive in the ancient Martian catacombs where the first colonists were buried. People who worked themselves to death to build the company's first mines. Uh, well... Benny, uh, maybe your grandpa's here. The group is soon surrounded by rebels. Uh, Benny reveals he has a mutated arm to gain their trust, and they all head to rebel headquarters to see Quato. Oh, so we're all mutants here. Uh, well, a little bit, I guess. <laughs> Quaid's brought to the room in back with the rebel leader, who unbuttons his shirt to reveal Quato is actually just a head and arm sticking out of his stomach. Wait a moment. George, the rebel leader, 
uh, is also Quato, the rebel leader. So Quanto is a psychic mutant who uses his telepathic powers to look into Quaid's mind and see what's been hidden there. I'm going to open up your mind. Open your mind, please. Do it. Come on. Turns out that as Hauser, Quaid had seen this giant freaking alien artifact that they found in the mine. It's a massive city-sized alien reactor that Cohagen was quite worried to turn on because it might blow up the entire planet. Oh, yeah, because there's the weird mineral that they, like, mine around here, and uh, that's apparently used in weapon stuff, and it could maybe explode and kill everyone. Wait, no, does, does this mean Cohagen's the good guy here? Uh, depends on if it's going to blow up or not. I mean, also, no. <laughs> Didn't think so. Just just checking. <laughs> so Quaid's memory session is interrupted by a large drill bursting through the wall, followed by many soldiers with guns. Kwatu leads Quaid, Melina, and Benny out in airlock where they begin to put on spacesuits to go outside. But Benny pulls a gun on them and shoots Kwatu. Apparently he's, like, taken orders from Richter and takes them all prisoner. Dun-dun-dun. Dang it, Benny. Thought you were cool. Uh, they're all taken to Cohagen, who finally reveals the master plan. Since Quanto is a telepath, they could never get an operative anywhere near the rebels because they always spotted them. So he took his best man, Hauser, and came up with a plan where they would wipe Hauser's mind and, you know, lead him back to Mars to side with the rebels so that they could find Quato and get led there. But Quaid was accidentally activated early. Richter, who had no idea what was going on, kept trying to kill him. And, you know, the whole thing probably shouldn't have worked, but now it did. So, uh, in some ways, Cohagen got ridiculously lucky. And Hauser, who confirms all of this in a recording, uh, wants his body back. So they're going to take them all to the recall chairs again to bring back all of his memories and strip Quaid away. Well, uh, goodbye, everyone. It's time to go to the brain donut again. So they strap Quaid into another memory device, and they strap Melina into another. They're apparently going to just change her brain so that she's like a demure housewife for Hauser or something. Gonna get rid of all that sleaziness. Uh, Cohagen and Richter leave as they start the process, but Quaid is able to use his pure muscle power to pull one of the restraints out of the chair and beat all the technicians to death with it. So I, I, I have to point out that the, the way he does this is just like the, the arm restraint is just like a pin. In the armrest. Yes. So this is a terrible design. <laughs> uh, I guess there might have been like a screw involved, but then that implies he's like also stripping the screw somehow in the process, which, you know, kind of is Arnie's uh, strength level there, you know, sort of in uh, movies. So I guess it kind of works out. So he and Melina make their way down to the mine tunnels where Quaid remembers there's an alien reactor. Uh, Melina wants to head back to Venusville to save everyone from suffocating, but Quaid seems to think the reactor will do that for them. They reach a dead end where they think that the tunnel should be, but then they're suddenly facing down a giant mining drill piloted by Benny. Oh no, Benny, our driver from earlier, is driving a, a mining vehicle. Okay. He tries to crush them, but Quaid is able to use his handheld drill thing to break the hydraulics of the drill car, then use it to punch through the side of the driver's door and end up in Benny. So it's definitely a case of uh, uh, dexterity beating strength in this case, because not even Schwarzenegger can, you know, bench press a giant tank with little drill things on it surprised they didn't try <laughs> next movie so the drill attack broke open the rock wall behind them revealing the massive alien reactor and quaid explains that the reactor is positioned over mars massive ice core and when active it will start to melt it and release a bunch of air into the planet making the atmosphere breathable wait a moment mars is filled with ice in this universe if you melt all the ice, wouldn't that mean that, that, mean that the planet collapses? Yeah. 
If the whole core is made of ice and you melt all the ice. Maybe it's like just like a, a an ice mantle or something like that. Mm. Or just a giant glacier. Yeah, that might make more sense. So they make their way to the main part of the reactor where Richter and his small army are waiting for them. Uh, Quaid and Melina make very creative use of the hologram emitter from before to take out every guard except Richter, who Quaid has to crush with an elevator. Well, he doesn't technically uh, crush uh, Richter with an elevator. He more disarms him. Though Quaid makes his way up to the alien control room that he saw in his visions, uh, where Kohagen is waiting for him. He's going to blow this place up before Quaid can activate it and possibly blow up the whole planet. So, Kohagen, why, why, why didn't you do that sooner? This may just be a story because also people have pointed out that if the Mars has normal breathable air, Kohagen uses his ability to control the population with a necessary resource. So Kohagen's going to reluctantly kill Quaid because he was friends with Hauser and he wanted him back, but now he's just too much trouble. But then Melina shows up in the elevator and guns Kohagen down. He's still able to activate the bomb, but Quaid grabs it and throws it down a convenient tunnel uh, to save the reactor, but blows a hole in the side of the mine and starts sucking out all the air around them. Oh no, our, you know, our uh, anti-atmosphere out there is going to kill us. Quick, do the thing. Uh, Koegen is pulled straight out and starts the overly long process of head explodification. And Quaid is able to pull himself back to the activation switch and start the reactor just before he and Melina are pulled outside as well. Uh, the reactor starts out pulling super hot metal rods down to the ice. The mine starts to become a giant air volcano and shoots gas all over, and giant waves of air shatter the domes, including in Venusville, where they get to wake up to fresh air outside. Uh, Quaid and Melina are saved from head explodification because it just pressurizes that quickly. Apparently. <laughs> and then they walk up a ridge to look at the new like, blue Martian sky. Uh, Quaid gets the horrible thought that maybe this all is just a dream, and they kiss as the sun just whites out the screen so uh i guess uh, uh dr Gregmar, uh his his uh complete uh, rundown of the rest of the movie was totally on 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 correct there yep even, get the girl kill the bad guy save the world even the threat of the the walls falling down because literally after he was killed the walls exploded huh yes <laughs> this is probably the smartest of these 80s action movies because all these 80s action movies have a bunch of weird like tropes and things in them because they're weird 80s action movies even something like robocop which like is still is a weirdly smart movie like it has a bunch of weird unbelievable action movie tropes in it so we're gonna shoot this guy and uh and it's gonna be real bloody and then it's like oh yeah and then we're gonna make a quippy one-liner and then we're gonna be like oh that that was a thing that happened now okay <laughs> now this movie is doing something super, super smart because none of the 80s action movie stuff starts until after he goes to recall. And then all of the stuff is just 80s action movie things. And they are leaning into the unbelievability of the genre to call your perception of reality into question. Yeah, so, yeah, you know, is it more likely that you're able to kill all these guys just as a reflex? Or is this actually, uh, you know, maybe a, a bit of a, a head game here? Yeah, and it's like three layers deep on this, because you watching this don't know how this world functions. You've just barely been introduced to this weird future society, so maybe some of this stuff is normal, and you just don't know. You also, as an audience member, know you're watching an 80s action movie, and so have suspended a lot of disbelief with how unbelievable it is that, you know, 80s action man is, like, 
holding restraints out of a chair with pure muscles and all that stuff, and then conveniently turning into a weapon that he gets to use to stab a bunch of people. It's almost like, I need a weapon. This could be a weapon. <laughs> so the way the movie is constructed, it's actually turning your own suspension of disbelief against you. You kind of, you know, even like just have seen the, you know, a trailer for this, you kind of have certain expectations going in there. Uh, well, this is going to be this kind of movie. And then it is this kind of movie, but only after a certain point, as you pointed out. Now, this is like uh, probably the third time I've seen this movie over the last few years. And I didn't quite notice because like it, it kind of takes multiple viewings to sort of notice all the little hints and things that they pepper in. It's like they are using concept art from the movie when they're populating the computer with his little yes. mind trip. <laughs> so like the reactor looks exactly the same when they talk about alien artifacts and they say two-headed monsters and mutants and aliens and they have all of that stuff. Quado is our two-headed alien. Uh, the, the mutants are just kind of everywhere, including the one guy with the weird, I guess, fissure in his head. Uh, yep. And the, uh, the, 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 the lady and her uh, daughter, I guess, uh, with like the... the you could see the future, and they got the one weird eye thing going on. So they got mutants there, and the reactor is basically a bunch of uh, cylinders that go down and poke the eyes, and that's what you see in the concept art. So, and then even the unbelievable, like dumb tropes, like this this entire bar is full of people with some version of mutation. The most normal looking person in there just happens to be the lead love interest. Yes, <laughs> and why is this woman? here it doesn't really make any sense unless this is a constructed world she's basically the only non-mutant that you really see working in this part of the resistance so you know early on uh someone might think that uh, uh george is a non-mutant there but you know it turns out he's quato so you know now this might be why they never have like like a romance scene with them because there might be something under her shirt i'm suddenly having a uh, uh it was a different adult swim uh cartoon uh with the guy that thought he was dating an alien and she'd take off her shirt and there'd be like squid tentacles everywhere <laughs> i don't even remember that but probably yes <laughs> so the kind of i always thought this was interesting the central hook of this movie is from we can remember it for you wholesale which is basically like if there was memory manipulation what would that actually say about anything because how can you be sure that anything's real because you have to rely on your memories to know what's going on arguably if you change your memories of your entire past you are a completely different person we've kind of covered that before in other things so uh you know what does what can this lead to as far as possibilities of our world what our our society might look like and uh well some of the uh i guess fringe benefits is you know could re result in things like recall being a thing where it's like all right we're not going to change your entire memory but we're going to enrich your, your what you believe to be the past in order to make you a happier person. Uh, and then the way that they set this up, I still just am going through it in my head because they they have hints both directions, which is great. Like a lot of it doesn't make any sense if you try to think of it as not the memory manipulated thing, but it's other parts of it don't make sense if it is the memory manipulated thing. Because uh, if it's not memory manipulation, why do we get all these scenes with like, Richter and Cohagen, you know, having a meeting in their office. And also, like, some of the way that the memory manipulation is supposed to stack up doesn't work out if you think about it. 
I didn't actually think of this before. Like I was watching the Dominic Noble uh, review of this movie before, which you should look up on YouTube. It's good. Uh, he pointed out that the vacation aspect wouldn't actually hold up for more than five minutes because you'd get back. It's like, I'm back from my two week trip. It's like, dude, you've been gone for an afternoon. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, FaceTime. There we go. <laughs> I guess maybe if you're willing to erase some of your memories, this part of the process so that you would not have uh, this weird discrepancy there. But the doctor showing up doesn't actually make sense as a plan because they want him to get away so that he can go find the resistance. So trying to like knock him out and kidnap him doesn't make any sense in the way that they're presenting the the plan from Cohagen. No, well, uh, they could be trying to operate multiple plans simultaneously. Or Richter's behind this move and uh, he's just being a dick. It also suggests that they have uh, little to no regulation in this world, which makes sense given the future corporate dystopia we seem to be dealing with. But like something like recall should not be legal. We're just going to uh, fill around the memories with no oversight whatsoever. And, uh, you know, if somebody uh, has a horrible time here, we'll just kind of make it go away and uh, pretend it never happened because we can do that here. Since it's ambiguous, you can't tell whether the like super danger is like real or if it's something that's just part of his like fantasy to explain why he becomes a secret agent. Also, interestingly, they don't imply that like the. They don't imply that the danger part was real. It's just, maybe this is the end of his dream and he's about to wake up. It could be that everything's going to be fine, and that was his two-week vacation on Mars. Alternatively, he's now actually lobotomized, or maybe this was real the entire time and he just can go on living his life uh, on a blue-skied Mars. And it's not entirely clear, and that's fine. And this technology does seem a little... It seems a little bit too common for everyone to be so confused by the idea of memory manipulation. You would think if it was, like, this seems this common that everyone has one of these frickin' machines. Like, every corporation has one of these frickin' things. Or two. And <laughs> they're like, oh, someone changed your memories and you're a different person. No, bull, there's no way that could happen. <laughs> That's unprecedented. Well, there, maybe there is some basic uh, regulations in place that just happen to be ignored a lot. Uh, but it's like, yes, you can implant memories, but uh, no erasing. That's that's bad. Don't do that. Our inspector's coming on Tuesday, by the way. <laughs> we covered memory manipulation a lot in our Dark City episode, so I don't know how much ground to retread here. Well, I guess we could uh, go through the full full speculation of the details here, uh, th you know, comb through the movie and try to come up with a definitive answer. But I also suggest that's probably not actually useful. That would be a different show, too. Yeah. <laughs> And so the, I guess the, there is maybe something to be said uh, about the compulsion to do that, uh, that, you know, we'd, we as a, a people want straight answers, but this movie is just refusing to give it to us. And it's kind of a subversion of uh, uh, sort of how things tend to go in a lot of uh, films, especially during that time period where it's like, okay, this is what happened. You had some fun along the way. You're good to go home now. Well, this movie is like, nope, we're just going to kind of keep messing with you. You're going to think about this for uh, for quite some time in the future and uh, have fun with that. Yeah, people don't tend to like the ambiguous endings as much anymore. You don't get them. And they set this one up way better than a lot of modern things. And yes, I am looking straight at Inception. <laughs> is the top going to fall over, man? We uh, don't no, know. It gets no too one soon. Gives a if that stupid top falls over. <laughs> I didn't even catch that the first time. 
the be- at the end of that movie. They set up the stupid thing so badly that I was even like, why is he spinning the dumb top? This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, it's trying to apply ambiguity when it's not really well grounded at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> this movie this, was just yeah. entirely ambiguous the whole way through because you keep getting taken out of it and that reminds you that you're watching a movie. Like, like that thing was too dumb to exist. Wait a minute. <laughs> so, like, they took the they took the memory hook from We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. And I, I didn't find any information from this. I don't think that it actually was in any way inspired by this. But the rest of the plot and the social commentary are a lot more similar to a Heinlein story called The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. I've heard of that one, but not read it. Which is, it's really simple. They set up a mining, they set up like a mining colony on the moon. And now the people who have lived there for generations, like, are pretty unhappy with the way the moon is being run as just sort of a, like, little puppet domain of earth governments instead of them being able to make their own decisions because they, you know, live millions of miles away. But the entire population is really, really easy to control because the second you start fighting anything they turn your air off well uh seems that we're being effectively kept powerless here and if we try to have any power we die what do this is a very anti-colonialist message which uh you got more in the 80s <laughs> mm-hmm. now, because uh, america does this all the time so american movies were constantly commenting on american colonialism uh which making it all corporate like the corporate colonialism is a very very common thing uh they they usually don't have their own like private armies they get your army to do it basically you use your uh, your national army as a as a as a rental yeah i saw this a while ago and it's a very good it's a very very good point that people don't make often enough with the dysto- like future dystopia things so like oh one day the corporations will like take over the governments and run everything and have their own private armies like no that stuff's expensive corporations get powerful enough that they make the government do it for them for free yes in fact that's kind of what colonialism is to a certain degree always been uh you know there's uh you know it's like okay so uh which uh you know uh uh, south american uh country are going to overthrow the government uh uh for now uh, in order to make sure that we get our bananas uh, imports uh, for cheap. Yeah, a lot of the, we've covered this before too, that a lot of the problems that we currently are dealing with in the United States with uh, like lots of immigration from South America, uh, destabilization in South America, burning the rainforests in South America, all the poverty in South America that is like as much as we try to ignore it directly affecting the United States and the rest of the world. Um, was caused by the United States fruit companies toppling uh, fairly progressive governments in the area to be able to grow fruit and have mines and control the Panama Canal and all that fun stuff. Oh, well, you want to extract some uh, resources to uh, keep the uh, the wealthy country over here, uh, you know, uh, uh, satisfied, uh, you know, its, its population happy and with the, you know, the various imports there. Uh, and if there's a resource you need for uh, to go fight it at war in a different part of the world, well, it's also something we can extract out of there, too, because we already have them under our thumb. You set up a colony, you send a bunch of people to this colony as workers, and then you can control the workers directly because they're your workers and you usually have sort of a company town thing set up 
which, oh my god, they're trying to set up again in Nevada. Yep. History is a flat circle. Can we, like, pressurize this circle? Could turn into a tire so we can get, start rolling <laughs> and get out of here, please? So, you start with that. Now, this one's an interest, slightly interesting one because um, this one didn't have a native population, which was a good call. Because they never handle that well in these colonialist movies. Tends to be, yes. So now you just have apparently several generations down of people who have lived and worked here for their entire lives, for their, you know, corporate overlords. Yeah, uh, we got, uh, you know, you know uh, basically a population that's been important, but has kind of become native. Um, I guess in some ways it's like the English settlers in the United States. Hmm. Yeah, though, there. if you ignore <laughs> the people who were already here. <laughs> yeah, so ignoring them... Oh no, it's getting awkward again. Uh, back to the movie. <laughs> there is nowhere on earth that you got colonialism without displacing a native population because by the time colonialism was happening, humans, as our prolific little animals we are, had already been to everywhere. I guess the, the only place we really didn't do a colonialism is like Antarctica. That that's because there was also nobody there to exploit. So you know, mm -hmm. there's no natural resources to gain, and there's no one there to use as cheap slave labor. So what's the point then? <laughs> Penguins go and do our bidding. Okay, they're not following our orders. Um, <laughs> let's just leave. <laughs> and uh, this this idea that can like we have this, we full on have this control of vital natural resources, and it's weird to see how much people justify it. Now, we think that it's kind of absurd when you're dealing with something like, you know, air. It's like, how do you control air? They want to. People are talking about it because we have so much pollution that there's literal companies that are talking about how do you get people to pay for purified air. Well, it's been a number of years now, but uh, oxygen bars are a thing in some places. It's like, yeah, the air quality here just sucks that much that we're going to have some purified air for you to come in and uh, suck on for a bit. Uh, so that you feel less crappy for a little for a little bit here, and uh, yeah, and now we're gonna pay you through the nose. Yeah, you're gonna pay us through the nose for it, which is also where you breathe the oxygen in those bars. Yeah, <laughs> but we do this now because look at the way um, this was. It's still going. I can't believe it's still going. But the most recent, one of the more recent things in the news was uh, Flint, Michigan. How many years now has it been? Oh my God, I don't even know. Way too long. Yes, and uh, that was just when we found out about it. Yes. Opposed to when it actually became horribly bad. Because as everyone already knows, they changed the the type of water that was going through their pipes to untreated water, which broke down the pipes, which caused a bunch of horrible, horrible chemicals, including lead, to get into the water. And it still hasn't been replaced. And people were literally, like, they started giving them bottled water, but there is literally a fresh water source not very far away that would be perfect for the town to tap into, but it is owned by Nestle. Yep. And Nestle's like, nah, we're just gonna keep control of it. So we let a, we let a chocolate company, I know it's just a conglomerate food company, but, you know, what else do you know them for? We've let a chocolate company control a vital natural resource that people literally need every day to live isn't there uh a, a bit of the uh you know like the u.s constitution or something like that that uh, allows a government to eminently domain over uh, important things that are that, that they need for public goods and things like that yeah but those eminent domain laws are uh 
a mess. <laughs> yeah, they, they tend to be able to take people's houses, but not be like massively yeah, territories owned by businesses because reasons. Yeah, because the businesses have too much political power. Yes. But even even taking aside from that, like water is obviously an extreme example. People don't think about it, but like try not paying your water bill. Said, well, I don't have any water now and I'm thirsty and need to bathe. And yeah. And where are you going sucks. to get it? I mean, I don't I don't actually know if this is everywhere. In Arizona, it's illegal to refuse someone water if they ask for it because it's a desert and we don't want people to randomly die on the street from dehydration. But I don't know if that's the play- case everywhere. Uh, I, I have my doubts on that. Uh, you know, it's like, well, so, you know, someone living in Maine is like, well, there's water everywhere, man. Yeah, but I don't own that water. Somebody else does. But a thing that we do this with constantly to the point where we stopped thinking about it is food, mm-hmm. which is another of the things that you just desperately need to live. Yes. Uh, we also do it with housing, but that and landlord situation and housing scarcity and the control of that as a natural resource is maybe just a little too complicated. Uh, artificial scarcity in order to uh, drive up the prices. Which we do with food as well. Mm-hmm. The normalcy that we've put on it is just, it's baffling to me and I don't have a better way to explain it. Like I know some of the philosophy behind this and how it changed, but just if you if you look at it, we have all agreed that if you don't make enough money to buy food, you should starve. Which is BS, of course. I mean, uh, people would argue like, oh, there's food banks and food stamps and all these other things. But like, the, it just, it obviously doesn't work because we have been talking about food insecurity in this country for decades. And, uh, you, know, it would, you know, a lot of food banks is like, yeah, we technically are still selling the food that was donated to us. It's just really cheap now. So, uh you, know, you can get this for, you know, like 20 cents, but you still have to pay something. Yeah. And like that makes sense because that food bank still needs money to operate because we're not funding these things. You know, uh, so you got you got to you know pay for their overhead still. And sure, it's going to be less than normal uh, groceries food, but still it's there. Uh, you know, there's uh, back in uh, back in high school, I did a, a, a charity thing to uh, gather food and things like that for folks. We actually went out of our way to uh, find a charity that does not sell uh, uh, the food back to people, but actually does give it away. Uh, and uh, don't tell the, sc- the school there, but it's actually a religious group. So, because <laughs> <laughs> they got their, they get their money a different way. So. <laughs> and so the, the, the thing that you hit here, it's like this, this is not an actual scarcity. Like we've talked about this before, the amount of food that gets just straight up thrown away in the United States and other like you know top economies is just ludicrous. Um, the price of food is both weirdly subsidized and artificially inflated. We literally leave fields fallow because if we grew the amount of food that we could grow theoretically, it would make the food too cheap to bother selling. So, uh... Why not give it away? Well, yeah, why not give it away? <laughs> because we have all collectively gotten this idea to the point where we don't even stop and think to question it that giving away something for free is wrong. That if you don't work for the thing, you shouldn't be allowed to have it. It gets back to that uh, you know weird moralism that you know laboring pointlessly is makes you more godly or something like that. 
Yes. Uh, well, we talk about that a lot in the U S our good old Puritan work ethic mm -hmm. that, uh, you have to work in order for something, something, something. Yes. It's it, the exact, uh, yeah, explanation gets a little, uh, ambiguous at the best of times. And so we got a situation. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're basically, we're, you know, laboring pointlessly in order to, you know, satisfy some ethic or principle that doesn't make any dang sense, but we're just kind of okay with it. And that's annoying. You can see this movie is a good example of this. Like, this is a, I'm forgetting my exact words and I didn't put my notes in front of me, which is dumb, but that's how I do. Um, there's a particular type of political power called the power of paradigm, which is where you basically create an idea that seems so natural and so unquestionable that you don't actually realize it's an idea you're thinking about, which is kind of so, what we've done now with a lot of the tropes that we hit in modern capitalism, like, well, of course, you have to work if you're going to get money to live. Makes sense. Like, you don't even think to question that sentence. But I, I will give, uh, you know, folks uh, credit for starting to question that more often here. It's like, you know... It, it's 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 not like super mainstream as far as that uh, goes, but I do see it more in uh, you know uh, folks my age and younger. They're like, you know, maybe all this really is kind of silly, and maybe we should be questioning some of the stuff more. Not everyone's doing it, but I am glad that it's happening more often. But it, we still got a long way to go before it results in a paradigm shift. I do think you get more and more questioning because, as was demonstrated pretty well in this movie, once you hit a certain point the flaws start becoming too obvious. Like, mm -hmm. well, we have to buy literal air, which is a thing that you have to have all the time. So you have no choice but to buy the literal air. And uh, even if you buy it, you know. <laughs> and we're hitting that more and more with things, especially in times now, like before we had this general, you would look at the system in the 90s, especially the 80s and 90s, when we had the giant uh, economic growth boom the boomer generation was in was like really full on in the workforce. Everyone had 2.5 houses and 3.5 kids and 1.8 cars. And I don't know where we put the other decimals. Um, uh, we filled them up with, uh, you know, there are uh, 2.6 uh, pets. The system had some flaws and people were talking about the flaws, but you could look around and see that generally it was working for everyone around you. Now it's so not. We're not going to worry about it. Yeah. Now it's like, so this actually kind of sucks. So we're all being really exploited right now. So uh, maybe we should like, I don't know, think about our whole basic uh, structure of society here and maybe see if we can, I don't know, improve it somewhat. So the basic, I, the basic thing that has happened with like, we had several economic downturns. Uh, things weren't set up very well to continue our massive economic growth ever since the seven, well, no, ever since the 40s, our entire economic system has been based on continual inflation, which we decoupled from any kind of actual regulatory control in the 70s, which is why inflation grew exponentially after that point. So there's been a lot of things leading up to this, but now we've kept all of the stick side of things, but the carrots kind of have been falling away like flies. Yes. So uh, at some point, people are going to get tired of being just hit with st uh, sticks here which is kind of what happens in some of these things yes 
And so I guess, uh, you know, the, the, the world of Total Recall is perhaps uh, prescient uh, for uh, kind of how we're vibing at this point. This gets into an actual slightly more also interesting uh, philosophical idea, since that's what I'm supposed to be talking about on this show, instead of just getting depressed about capitalism. Oh, we can do both, you know. <laughs> There's a uh, Foucault idea, one of his pretty famous ideas, called the episteme which is basically a way of looking at history in the things that you are capable of thinking about given the information and cultural influences you have, which is kind of what we were talking about with the paradigm shifting. Like, There's certain sets of ideas that because of your historical episteme, you think of these ideas, but... In a different episteme, it would be unimaginable that these ideas would even present themselves to you. Yeah, it's sort of the, you know, a mixture of uh, experiences, uh, base assumptions about the world, be they explicit or implicit, uh, as well as, uh, you, know, you know, various sort of, you know, influences about how David uh, structure your thinking, uh, kind of com combining together in order to uh, either expand or limit your ability to uh, conceptualize things which i don't have a, a great concrete example but it's kind of like if you if you go back to like you know the renaissance period everyone had a very particular way of thinking about the world so like i know that they were experimenting with it but the idea of like a gps satellite would not occur to someone living in the renaissance period because not only was the like technological infrastructure not available but the idea of having something flying around in space wouldn't have made any sense the idea that you might even need to know so accurately where you were at all times wouldn't even necessarily occur to someone as a useful thing what do you mean we have to know when and where we're at they had different ways of mapping things even going further back like uh, ancient Greek philosophers criticized written language because they thought that it would make it harder for you to remember things. It's kids these days in their books. The shifts in the way you think, you can follow it through and you can kind of follow ideas and see how they move and transform over history. But that's kind of the basic idea of either these paradigm shifts or the you know Foucault idea of the episteme that your your literal way of thinking is so shaped by the historical era and culture that you are in that there are certain there's certain ideas that just it seems like everyone starts to have around the same time and that's why but there's other ideas that just flat out cannot occur to you because you don't have the like other infrastructure around for them to exist so uh, i guess to a certain extent uh it's you know if we want to change our paradigm uh, altering our uh, infrastructure can be potentially useful for that. Yeah, and it's just something that happens over time. Um, I don't know if there's a particular way to... I mean, you can somewhat influence it. But even the influences, like the way people now are talking about the problems with modern capitalism come out of the fact that we've been living with it for so long and that so many people have come up with alternatives and that those alternatives have been able to spread around through slightly more underground channels than the mainstream like you know even like when this movie came out in the 90s when the internet wasn't so much of a thing and people weren't talking to each other on there all the time how often did you hear anyone mention 
uh, communism or Marxism as anything other than hushed, scared tones. Yeah. <laughs> now it's somewhat commonplace to identify yourself as a communist, and the idea of just yelling communism at everything has become a bored political trope. Yeah, it's it's become a, a ridiculous scream as opposed to you know, an actual uh, you know potent uh, you know, cudgel you can use against uh, your political enemies. Which isn't really a shift that could have taken place if we hadn't had the internet come along, which kind of took the information stranglehold out from uh, mainstream media sources. Now, that's created some other problems. and yeah, There are other attempts to strangle the, the media narratives as well, because, uh, you know, folks that were kind of in charge of that sort of thing Sometimes, yeah, and we're benefiting a great deal from uh, that limitation of information. Kind of want to get back there, and so in- innovating new ways to manipulate people has resulted. Like uh, I saw an interview with uh, Noam Chomsky where he was talking about this sort of soft censorship that happens. Like, try writing an article that's overly critical of the media and see how much traction you get, because. The media is the one who has to publish it. So, yeah, technically, the government doesn't come in and tell you you're not allowed to write it, but good luck getting an audience. Yeah, so uh, I, I'm reminded a little bit of uh, Shutterrun, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those unfamiliar, that's a uh, tabletop RPG uh, that uh, I, I forget if it was one of the supplements or one of the, the main books or something like that. But uh, it was sort of like, all right, in order to get your audience for your big you know, bit of information that uh, that you you have that, that you've spent all this time and blood trying to uh, acquire from the major you know uh, mega corp over here in order to get it out there so people know what's up and are actually willing to do something about it. You can't just publish it on your blog now because no one's going to care. <laughs> you have to uh, engineer a big enough splash so that the revelation of it comes out in the right uh, form as well as you know, is seen by the right people in order to make sure that it gets passed on. So, you know, hide it on your your, your backup drive that uh, no one will find until you're dead sort of stuff, uh, stuff there. Because <laughs> uh, then, then it becomes a mystery. And in the, you know, the paradigm of that world uh, is, you know, like people are like, oh, if it's something that people are trying to keep covered, then it, I must go on a crusade now in order to you know, get it out there. Um, as opposed to, well, I put it on the internet and nobody has checked to read my article here. Yeah. <laughs> so you kind of have to, in order to get a uh, certain kinds of information out there, you do kind of need to establish a, uh, understand the how of how it's going to be transmitted uh, most effectively in order to get around the, you know, the blockades like that. Some of them very much, uh, structural, like in the shadow running example, where it's like, oh, no one cares. Or, you know, if you're being a critical of the media sort of message, you can't go to the New York Times and, hey, publish my thing here. And they're like, um, maybe if you pay us. <laughs> well, you can see kind of the like the op eds that people have been <laughs> criticizing, where it's a lot easier to get a op ed that's critical of progressive policies in the new york times than it seems to be an op-ed that would criticize say the person who owns the new york times yeah <laughs> uh, seems that there are acceptable targets and there are unacceptable targets in that case maybe we should 
Like, I know it's a movie episode. It's going to run long, but maybe we should go over to the science portion of the show since the political commentary portion is depressing. So, uh, the, the mineral that they're mining on Mars, I'm pretty sure it's made up. <laughs> really? No. <laughs> but uh, independent of that, uh, there is the, the atmosphere problem. Uh, which is a little ridiculous uh, in that it's not just a apparently a vacuum on the surface of Mars, but a super vacuum where your eyes are going to get literally pulled out of your head uh, because there's just such a pressure difference between the inside of your body and this, the surface of Mars, apparently. Well, here's the thing. Um, they've, they've mined the planet so much that all of the new tunnels have just taken all of the air that was there since it was a thin <laughs> atmosphere to begin with and just moved it underground. So, yeah, it's, it's just such a kind of ridiculous sort of uh, this isn't how things actually work <laughs> sort of situation. <laughs> it's just kind of funny to me because, uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of all right. The, the atmosphere of Mars is like uh, less than uh, like 1% dense uh, uh uh, pressure than the uh, the Earth's atmosphere, but even still, you aren't going to have your head explode if you're on the surface of Mars. You're going to have a bad time because there isn't really any oxygen to breathe, and it's going to be generally pretty cold. But uh, it is still not going to be that extreme and dangerous. Yeah, you so, have a particular problem because there's no plants on Mars, and therefore the atmosphere is mostly non-breathable gases. Yeah, it's a uh, 95% carbon dioxide there. So that's not a good time. Nope. <laughs> Even if you did have high enough air pressure to breathe it. Uh, in fact, uh, the carbon monoxide percentage is about half that of the oxygen. So even if you could somehow maintain yourself on the oxygen, uh, that uh, carbon monoxide is probably going to get you too. Oh, that gets you fast. That's nasty stuff. <laughs> Still not much of it, but there's not much oxygen either. So, <laughs> But if you're somehow only breathing that much, uh, needing that much to breathe, you're going to get a little bit of overdose of the monoxide there. Um, but, uh, it is, uh, there, there's like two or 3% of, uh, nitrogen. So, uh, I guess that's fine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's literally neutral. <laughs> yes. But, uh, it's, you know, it's not really going to help you much at all, but, uh, the, uh, the, I guess the important thing to know is that, you know, human life cannot be sustained on, um, the surface of Mars as is, and you don't need to have your head explode in order to, uh, to, to demonstrate that you can just sort of go uh, uh, i can't breathe uh, and i'm really cold right now uh, and then then you pass out and then you die okay i i had some training as an emt something a career that i didn't actually get to go into because of an injury but i was a licensed emt mm -hmm. uh carbon monoxide would not you wouldn't go like uh, 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 you would start breathing immediately and pass out because the carbon monoxide in your lungs would overwhelm your brain immediately. You'd get super confused. You'd get carbon monoxide poisoning. You would pass out before you had any idea what was going on. And then anytime you got near carbon dioxide again, the same thing would happen. Because carbon monoxide poisoning ruins you for life. Yeah, it just kind of builds up and uh, sets you up to, uh, to react to it instantly, eh? Yeah. So actually, I didn't know the whole thing was carbon monoxide, which makes sense. I didn't think it had a breathable atmosphere. Well, well, it's, it, no, it's, well it's, it's not all carbon monoxide. It's like, you know, uh, uh, the, you know the carbon dioxide is 95%. <laughs> but the place is literally toxic. Yeah. So it's carbon dioxide, nitrogen, ar uh, argon, oxygen, and then carbon monoxide is the, uh, uh, the fifth uh, most uh, common uh, 
uh, gas on the on the surface there. Um, but also on Mars, you're going to be uh, a bit a bit on the chilly side. Uh, like you know, a typical day is going to be like minus eighty Fahrenheit sort of temperatures there. If you're lucky, it might get up to freezing, maybe. <laughs> but uh, you know, at the at the same time, it could also go below a hundred Fahrenheit, and uh, that's going to be a bad time. Uh, and so you definitely need to be uh, bringing a coat at the very least uh, on top of your uh, your oxygen gear here. Uh, so uh, so so watch out for that. Um, is there anything else uh, as far as the uh, uh, atmospheric exposure I should mention? Uh, otherwise, I'm going to move on to gravity. <laughs> it's a little shy of Earth normal. Yes. <laughs> so uh, Mars is a less massive planet than Earth and is also a smaller physical planet than Earth, too. Uh, and so these two uh, factors do kind of counteract each other to a certain degree because force of gravity is, uh, you know, G, uh, the mass of the, uh, the uh, you know, one object times the mass of the other object divided by, you know, the distance uh, to the center of uh, mass or uh, the, the distance between the center and the mass is squared. Uh, so if you have a bigger object, you, uh, you know, surface gravity is going to be reduced. If you have a smaller object, it's going to be increased. And then the masses, you know, scale linearly there. So you've got more massive planet means it's going to be more gravity, less massive, less gravity sort of stuff. Uh, so uh, the surface gravity of Mars is going to be, is about a third that of Earth's. So, you know, for uh, the action scenes, that's, that's both great and inconvenient. Because suddenly, not only are you able to throw uh, people single-handedly, uh, you know, across the room and not have to be Arnold Schwarzenegger to do it, but uh, if you are Arnold Schwarzenegger, you can't wait for them to land finally. <laughs> it's like yeah. come, come down i need to punch you again <laughs> that was a massive plot point in the uh, edgar rice burroughs barsoom series that the guy's a superhuman on mars simply for the fact that he has earth density muscles <laughs> so i am super strong here uh i guess i get to beat up everyone who's super strong on mars but not super strong from earth <laughs> but um it's still kind of uh, something that I, I, I think about occasionally uh, when poking at my own sci-fi writing is, you know, there is, you know, the problem of gravity. And, you know, so you have to watch out for your momentum and things like that to a certain degree. But there's also this funny thing that gravity is also what you use in order to stop when you're like walking around. So it's going to be kind of awkward to get used to. Uh, uh, if you want uh, a planet with uh, radically different gravity compared to Earth, especially lower gravity, because suddenly, well, my feet aren't making good contact with the surface anymore. So I, I was running, and now I can't really stop. And I'm going to run into this wall now because I couldn't stop in time. And so that could be a bit awkward. And uh, could, if, we, if we wanted a little more sla uh, slapstick in our uh, total recall here, uh, we could have had something like that uh, come in. So yeah, watch out for the gravity. Uh, sometimes it's hard to stop. Uh, and so it's like, oh, we're always skidding whenever we're trying to stop our vehicles or whatever. That could have been kind of amusing. They don't go over it, but it does explain how they make some of those improbably long jumps from one side of a room to the dome on the other side. True. <laughs> uh, I didn't even think about that. It's like, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there are these environmental differences uh, that you run into when you go to Mars that... Uh, uh, are I guess lightly touched upon in this movie, but uh, there are or, or over touched upon. But uh, the, you know, the actual reality of it is 
both less explodey facey, but also kind of uh, an opportunity to have lots of other f- sort of fun stuff going on. But that'd also be a very kind of different movie as well. So, uh, and uh, I guess it also kind of brings into the uh, back to the question of uh, the, the the realization of what is this? What's actually going on here? Is this just what he thinks is uh, life is like on Mars? Or is this actually how the Mars works in that universe? Yeah, it's a very interesting know. one because they don't actually show anyone outside of his one dream sequence and then the stuff after recall. They don't say there's no air and it will, there's no actual atmosphere and your head will explode. And uh, the only uh, real shots of things on actual Mars that we see is in the news footage where, you know, it's probably not all that reliable for various reasons, but uh, also most people there are already dead. So. They're not moving around very much. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you test the uh, the gravitational conditions of a of a, of a far off world when everyone there is already dead? Um, we we try to throw the bodies. I don't know. <laughs> but but you're not there either, huh? So yeah, the the, uh, the limitation of information kind of strikes again here, and you know all the complaints about uh, you know Mars here from me could be completely mute moot. Uh, uh, moot uh, you know, depending on your interpretation of the the movie, um, and that's kind of not something I run into very often in these sort of things. So that's kind of cool. And we also like got to remember this movie was made in the eighties up into nineteen ninety. Um, all of our stuff about Mars at that point was from flybys and telescopes, and we didn't really have good images of Mars at the time. Yeah, we find a couple landers, uh, the Vikings there, but uh, you know, it's sort of not a rover sort of situation. It's like, well, we, we plop down. Uh, here's some low-quality images here and uh, a couple measures here. And, uh, well, that's it. <laughs> yeah, we were still working with some older stuff. And then I was, I was just thinking about how they included alien, Martian aliens in the movie, which has been such a trope. Going back to the, like, 1870s, Yep. <laughs> Guess of, uh, you know, a pre-war of the world, really. <laughs> yeah, in the, like, well, like, the some of the earliest depictions of Mars in, like, uh, the 1850s and 1860s included the idea of Martian canals, which... Um, Canale. Some of the later stuff, the, um, the some of the most famous, more modern descriptions were by uh, Percival Lowell, who was a pretty famous astronomer in the early 1900s. Um this 30 centimeter telescope if you if you go look at his original drawings they're weirdly close to the way that the reflection of the blood vessels in the back of your eye look yep <laughs> it's like uh have you tried rubbing your eyes before and after this year <laughs> but this idea pervaded popular culture well through the 1900s it was it was basically the it was it was the basis of of most martian sci-fi literature well into the 1950s like there okay. there are heinlein books that reference the canals on mars and the ancient civilization that must have lived there it's like you know uh how uh i'm trying to remember the name of the specific book but yeah there's that one series uh where there's like a martian civilization but it's like in the process of dying as humans are showing up yeah that uh, was uh, well, stranger in a strange land. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> uh, 
and uh, the and it, it just it's, it's sort of just kind of all over the place. And to a certain extent, the as science is slowly caught up with actual observations of uh, Mars, uh, you know, with the flybys, the landers, and now the rover uh, sort of generation there, uh, our understanding of what's you know even possible there has evolved quite a deal, uh, quite a great deal. Uh, like even in Doctor Who, they're like, okay, we still have our Mar- our, our Martians from Mars, sort of aliens out there, but now they all lived underground, so that they were never really visible on the surface. Yeah, that's how I can explain it. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about the like. Speaking of the Epstein idea, like now it's downright weird it's considered strange to think that there's life especially intelligent life on any other planet in our solar system Mm -hmm. in the 18 and through most of the 1900s it was common knowledge that there was probably intelligent life on every planet in the solar system like oh yeah we can't see much of the details about venus so uh obviously as cloud cover and thus That means jungles, and so we're going to have a jungle civilization on uh, Venus there. Yeah, there was plenty of, like, like every book into the 60s and 70s, Asimov was writing about the civilizations that would live on Jupiter. Like, like obviously, some of it was a little tongue-in-cheek and more of a, like, well, what if an intelligent civilization lived here? But, like, the idea that you would get to a planet and it was just a barren rock floating in space is a very modern concept even though we consider it so normal so the idea that they had alien artifacts on mars here is like i mean it's a little hokey it's always been a little hokey but it was a lot more normal sounding in the 1980s than it is now it's like of course we're gonna find something weird on mars it's it's an alien planet come on like just the it's interesting now because it's considered almost downright sacrilegious to say that there would be intelligent life on other planets but it was commonly accepted scientific knowledge well into the 1950s it's like oh we just lack the ability to communicate with people over there uh yeah maybe they don't have radars yet and if you think about it especially in the 1800s and like the the dying off period of colonialism where we'd basically explored everywhere on the planet and found people well of course we're going to find people you go to some remote island in the middle of the Pacific, like miles and miles away from any other land, and there's people. Oh, there's uh, Rapa Panuni, and uh, they, they, there's people here, and they got big, giant stone heads. Huh, this is weird. Uh, how close are we to anything? <laughs> so, like, yeah, you're going to get to the moon, and you're going to find people, because you found people literally everywhere else you've explored. And uh, I guess there's also, you know, the uh, temptation of that, that, that next frontier sort of thing goes well perhaps even a final frontier uh, where it's like, okay, so we've, we've gone through this process multiple times throughout our history. We've gone somewhere. We've met some uh, natives. We kind of took over. Maybe we're, we're jerks to them in the process. And, uh, you know, because we're going to downplay all that. And, uh, and th- then we kind of, uh, quote, civilize things. And then we find a new place to do this to. And then the whole process repeats over and over again. So why wouldn't that continue to process forward in the future as we go to different planets and like you said with the doctor who thing like as it as it expanded first we we're like well there's obviously a full-on civilization on mars we can see the evidence of the building then the more details we got and discovered like you know there's actually no water or air or other <laughs> stuff um well it must be 
a either dying or dead civilization that was there because we can see evidence of it. And now it's just like, well, those canals don't actually exist at all. Yeah. <laughs> there is uh, some canyons, but no. The, I guarantee you people yeah. would still talk about them. Yeah. Uh, I, I suspect there's probably someone on the internet right now claiming that there's still uh, lots of canals on Mars. Yeah, the giant face, you know. It's not just a weird outcropping with, you know, uh, some weird shadows on it. Not at all. It's actually a face carved perfectly. Because, of course, it would be even after getting better photos of it. Anyway, uh, I guess it's kind of nice that they didn't have the Mars face, uh, just, you know, uh, you know uh, sort of, you know, weird pictures uh, available before this movie was put together. Because uh, they would probably just made it that instead. But instead, they, they had... Then they uh, instead they uh, used that for Mission to Mars. I think it was. Mm. I know this watching watching this movie made me want to replay Red Faction Guerrilla, which is a game set on a imperialized corporate controlled Mars. <laughs> and the the intro scene to that game is the Martian face. <laughs> so are you uh, playing uh, for or against Cohagen in that one? Maybe against Cohagen. You have a cool hammer. And you get to destroy stuff with poorly lamented destruction physics that i remember was super impressive in the early thousands nice <laughs> can't remember when that game came out anyway it's fun it's dumb it's old style it's old style open world adventure games like so it's dull and repetitive but it's neat and it's mars you know maybe we need more uh adventure games like that uh set on mars Okay, so I think we should finish off by talking about kind of the crux end scene of the movie, which is full-on terraforming Mars. That atmosphere is not going to be sustainable. Nope. So the $64,000 question about Mars has generally been, why doesn't it have a thick atmosphere? And it kind of comes down to magnets, man. Yeah, Mars doesn't have a liquid <laughs> core magnetic field thing, doesn't it? No, it it doesn't have a, a strong magnetic field. It has sort of localized quirkiness, uh, you know, you know, in bits. So it's like maybe there's pieces of a iron core kind of floating around inside of it somewhere, but uh, nothing, uh, you know, as uh, highly magnetized as the Earth's core is, uh, which is you know not that magnetized, but it's it's, it's enough to create a, a, a fairly easy magnetic field. Uh, and so Mars lacks a large magnetic field uh, generated by its core. And so as the sun's solar wind, a collection of plasmas and uh, you know, other particles, uh, streams out from the sun and uh, uh, hits uh, the up, uh, Mars' uh, upper atmosphere, it ionizes the air. Uh, and then this creates a plasma uh, locally that can generate a small uh, magnetic field, but in the process is also stripping off part of that atmosphere. So the there is being, you know, because there's not this, bigger shell of, of uh, you know, magnetic, uh, you know, interruptions to sort of uh, redirect that, that uh, flow of the solar wind elsewhere. It's hitting the, uh, the atmosphere and slowly pulling it off. And so over millions and billions of years, you're going to get a situation where it's like, all right, there might've been a thick atmosphere here, but it's all been ionized and pushed off now. So uh, it's not much left. And so that's how we get kind of Mars's atmosphere today. So basically what you're saying is all the theories and things on how we could slowly terraform Mars with plant life and other things wouldn't be sustainable no matter what we did because it doesn't have the magnetic field that we have to keep the atmosphere from being literally stripped away by the sun. Uh, yes, provided we don't 
basically get around that somehow. And so there's actually ideas out there to actually build basically a giant magnet in space near Mars in order to create an artificial magnetosphere around the planet uh, in order to protect its atmosphere if we were to, uh, you know, thicken it up a bit. But, uh, you know, that would be kind of a mega project sort of situation. Giant space magnet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Magnets, man. They're in space. Magnetic moon. Uh, yeah, quite literally. Uh, you uh, put in a position so that it uh, uh, orbits in time with Mars. So it's basically like a, so a solar filter, except in, you know, just magnetics. So you would kind of make a, um, a tidally locked orbital period. So that it's always facing toward the sun and is blocking the... Oh, that's weird. How far yeah. out would you have to put a satellite in order to get it to orbit around Mars once a Martian year? That feels a little uh, iffy. Yeah, it would have to be pretty far out. Uh, and so you'd actually have to have a generally uh, quite robust magnetic field being generated uh, from it. I don't know the exact numbers. I probably should try to done, uh, done some calculations before recording today, but... I didn't think to do that, um, but it is uh, it is a problem that is solvable in order to get a general idea of one orbit per one Martian year, uh, and then all right, we need to have this uh, minimal uh, magnetic field strength, you know, at the uh, Mars, uh, you know, upper atmosphere where it's going to be after terraforming, uh, and so this is just sort of a a problem we could actually toss the numbers at and come up with an actual answer. Could you just do three smaller equidistant magnetic moons that just orbit faster so you don't have to make it that big? Yeah, that is one possibility uh, as well. Uh, though the uh, exactness of the mag uh, magnetic uh, structure might get a little complicated because you don't want the solar wind to suddenly being filtered directly into a specific location uh, costly as opposed to, you know, just over the entire planet. Well, why? That's what we've got. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because then you, you get, you know, maybe a nice Northern Lights uh, situation, but if you screw it up badly, suddenly you have uh, an electron laser that's just scouring part of the planet. So, <laughs> Well, then you just put a solar panel there and you're golden. Yeah, yeah, and just collect the, collect the electrons. It'll be fine. <laughs> Power the whole planet with sun magnets. <laughs> yeah, now, now I'm thinking about, uh, you know, means to basically try to harness the solar wind just out in space somewhere. Hmm. I'll have to ponder this a bit. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so if you could fix the magnetic problem with Mars to protect the atmosphere from long-term degradation, then yeah, uh, tele uh, you know, terraforming the planet is doable. It's not going to ever be the exact same as Earth, but it is going to be uh, you know, potentially a functional ecosystem at some point. Uh, and perhaps even one where you can go outside and not, like, freeze to death. Now, the particular thing you hit, and it's what's interesting, because they did that in this movie, Mars is useful for something, and you have a reason to go there. Mm -hmm. Because you need this whatever mineral. Um, we don't have that, so basically it's never going to happen, because the only reason we would ever terraform Mars is because we can. Yep. And it's too expensive. And also, there's all there are some, like, we've touched on this before, there's some interesting mild like ecological ethics involved of like if we terraformed mars we would be destroying a unique natural habitat like yep. nothing lives there but it's a unique place that doesn't exist anywhere else and we would basically be destroying it to make it like possibly viable for us to breathe there but why so uh 
So yeah, so, so there's you know, is that an ethical thing to do or not? Uh, can't we just continue to live on Earth or build space stations instead? Yeah, why are we doing all of this space stuff? I was literally listening to a thing yesterday that's like it's like we are we are destroying the climate with all of this space stuff. Because launching a rocket produces like two years worth of greenhouse gases as compared to like just flying across the ocean and some other things that create a lot of exhaust. Now there is a yeah, a portion of those uh, gases being produced uh, is water vapor just due to the nature of uh, hydrogen oxygen engines. But uh, there are, you know, also solid rocket boosters that, you know, have a little bit more complicated uh, chemistry going on. Uh, but I don't know the specifics of that, so I'm probably not the best person to talk to about them. We have this weird, we have this weird dream idea that, see this, it's it's Australia. You're trying to remake Australia. Yeah. No one's going to say <laughs> it, but you want to create a colony to deal with people like our dwindling resources or whatever. You're going to use a lot of our resources, which aren't dwindling. We covered this before to try to solve a problem we don't have overpopulation uh and the whole whoa we need to become a multiple planet species thing to survive it's like why by the time this becomes a problem we won't we'll have evolved past the point where we're recognizably human anyway yeah and also being a multi uh planet uh, species tends to work better if it's around different stars yeah like if something goes wrong with this solar system it's gonna take out mars we don't want that, so... And why, I always hit this question, like, why do we care so much? Like, we, we want to do this whole, like, oh, if we're multiple planets, whatever, whatever, humanity can never go extinct. It's like, the, the time and energy you're putting into this, you could prevent people from going extinct on this planet now. Yep. We don't care about helping what's going on now, or this generation, or even the next two generations. But oh my god, 60 generations from now, we might wind up in a problem that would be helpful to have Mars available to move to. So I'm generally in the why can't we do both sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, camp myself, where we can actually solve the problems we have here on Earth now. We're just not doing it. And it would also be nice to uh, have, you know, at least the very least outposts out in the, uh, you know, around the solar system and beyond so that we can further our understanding of the universe and, you know, uh, you know, perhaps make solving our problems here on earth, uh, easier by the, you know, through that understanding. Uh, and, and so th these are kind of goals that can work together, but how we're sort of approaching it isn't very well formed in order to, uh, you know, do any of that. It's more of a, well, I want to build a, uh, you know, a, a, a bridge and be like a Victorian here, but I want it to be in space now. No, we kind of like, at the minute, we can't do both because the way that we're using the one is to distract from the other. <laughs> well, uh, well not, not, not exactly, I guess. Uh, I, I will uh, say that there is, uh, there are, even in the uh, very, Oh, I would call it um, a methodical pr approach to, uh, you know, working through space travel and keeping up, you know, at the very least keeping up the expertise there, if not advancing it. We are able to, over time, generate uh, innovations that are uh, sort of, I guess, side benefits. Uh, and sometimes that's not necessarily going to be uh, very much obvious right at when they're uh, uh, being generated. Uh, however, 
the long-term basic research is still very useful in order to, you know, you know, put together the solutions for the next big problems that we're going to be running into on our world. Now, that is true, though I would argue, and I'm not necessarily trying to argue against the idea of, you know, space science, but I would argue that any research project that you fund in that kind of way that we did with space science in the 60s is going to yield unexpected results that can be used elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So you could do exactly the same thing by, say, superfunding our climate change research or alternative energy yeah. things. Like, you're not just going to invent the thing you fund. You're going to invent other stuff. Yes. We got people really excited about the space thing. Uh, we used it to distract from some of our Cold War problems and social problems, and they p- literally pushed it through hurting other social uh, social safety things that we were trying to push through at the time. Uh, it like The whole space race thing was actually just a giant political pandering idea. We got some good science out of it, and I'm not going to argue yeah. that that isn't worthwhile, but like, like the entire thing was used to distract from actual real problems that we had. Yeah, as a, a scientist who tries to have ethics, it would be like, it would be nice to not be distracting people and just sort of have part of our, our, our impulse to do things like this anyway without that need in order to be you know have this ulterior motive sort of going on with it we should be working on our problems that we have while also being i guess able to dream big i think the real thing to think about with this is like right now we do have a lot of stuff like that space travel is necessary for for modern living i was literally literally everyone's been talking about space junk recently and how much like messing up one satellite is basically going to topple this whole house of dominoes we've built here i mixed my metaphors but eh. <laughs> yeah well it's a, the, the kessler syndrome i think it is yeah like if one piece of space debris knocks into another one it could create a chain reaction that like gets rid of all of our really important satellites Yep, and suddenly uh, communications is suddenly, you know, a lot more complicated. Uh, you know, things that monitor stuff from space of various sorts, uh, be it weather or who's firing missiles or whatever, all that's suddenly going to be uh, out of commission. And you're just like, well, this sucks. And uh, hopefully the uh, the satellites in uh, much different orbit are going to be not affected here. And, uh, you know, and uh, thankfully space is kind of big like that, but... Still, trying to, you know, if we have a certain layer that is now full of just random debris here, getting something beyond it is going to become much more difficult. So, you know, there's stuff like that. Satellites are super useful and helpful for things, and we need them for stuff. But that's even blocking other science. There's other things in there. So everything's got these trade-offs. Like, going, sending the rovers to Mars and doing research and learning things about the solar system and the formation of worlds and the way that things evolved, like, that's really interesting and does have some useful things space tourism and trying to terraform mars so that rich people can have a vacation home there there's not a lot of point to that yeah it's not a good point there it's neat it's a flex but other than that no uh you know as, as someone who would still like to go into space at some point uh i am willing to wait until there's a good reason for me to so anyway that's my like we, 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 like, science fiction is all about looking to the future and whatever, and people love to use it as, like, oh, it's it's just an a, a inspiration towards progress. But the idea that we're using progress that way is very, I don't know, Western, mildly racist. 
uh, a lot of other things we've gone into. Like, yes. we, we should actually be using thinking about the future to question whether the way we're thinking about the future is good and viable and if we should maybe change it in any way. Indeed. Now there's a, in my, uh, you know, my manuscript, which I'm trying to get published, uh, the various colonies around the solar system were set up by different, uh, you know, uh, nations or nation groups, uh, sometimes with radically different reasons for why they did it. Uh, some of them were very much, yeah, we're going here for the, you know, just the science and, oh, we're still here, so what now? Uh, other ones are very much like, well, they, this people put this this uh, base on this boon here. we got to have one too, uh, because otherwise we're not as badass as we think we are, sort of uh, nonsense. And uh, and so it is, as far as the speculation about what might happen and how it might come about, uh, there is, I, I do try to sort of think about the, how, uh, various our motivations might be if we're willing to both question things and if we're not willing to question these things. Because sometimes we're going to be in a situation where people are going to go out there for kind of terrible reasons. And maybe in others, we're going to go out there for the right reasons. And I'd like us to go out there for the right reasons. And so kind of having the opportunity to compare and contrast there can be kind of useful when I'm uh, creating fiction like that. Okay, I think that we've probably covered about as much as we're going to be able to cover given the time constraints of our format so it's probably yeah. time to move on to the galaxy's favorite game show hey everybody welcome to the game show portion of the show i hope you guys have all uh uh, reload your clips because uh, I guess everyone no no one runs out of bullets on this on this movie. Oh, okay, never mind. Um, so let's just start tallying uh, up some uh, points here and handing out prizes. Uh, in fact, our first one is ready to go. Uh, the first one is the hard drive brain prize, which goes to Hauser, Quaid, Doctor Edgemar, and the whole recall uh, crew there because memory manipulation for fun and profit and all that sort of stuff. What do they win, Gepwin? They win a modern-style government crackdown on technology. This is obviously one of those things that they invented. They never thought they'd have to regulate it. Now it's the Wild West of things, and, like, someone should probably look into that. Hmm. Suddenly going to have, uh, like, brain, uh, millennial digital copyright act, except for memories instead. It's going to be really awkward. Our, uh, our second prize here is the sufficiently advanced alien, which goes to the unnamed aliens that built the reactor, because... Instant terraforming uh, counts as magical by uh, melting a glacier, I guess. Maybe it's made out of uh, frozen oxygen. I don't know. Uh, what do they win, Gepwin? They win the Alien Gods Worship Award. They obviously set this thing up for humans, right? Because either there was no at like either there was no atmosphere there, and they built the thing to turn it into breathable for them and then left before they could use it, or they were able to live there fine and they set it up so that future humans could use it and make it into a breathable atmosphere there. Because otherwise, how did the aliens actually build this thing? That's a good question. And it's not entirely gone into it all in this movie. Uh, our third prize is the Fooled You Prize, which goes to Quaid and Melina for, using, for their use of hologram projectors to get a drop on a bunch of goons. What do they win, Gepwin? 
they win a full-on holodeck award because like the creative uses they have for this thing it's really fun also i remember when they used to set up stuff they were going to use in movies instead of just pulling it out five minutes before this is like a good old old-fashioned james bond setup where you go over all of the gadgets and they use them each once mm-hmm. i miss that <laughs> i kind of love it that and so uh we get this uh yeah they got the the the, the tee up and then you got the, the the swing and we got it all good to go uh and then they uh i did particularly enjoy the bit where uh, you know quaid's like ah oh, you found the hologram again wait one more time real ha ha <laughs> our uh our next prize is the everybody loves robots prize which goes to johnny cab because self-driving cars really should be unintentionally snarky what does Johnny Cab win, Gepwin? Johnny Cab wins all those government contracts we're trying to give to Tesla and things right now because it seems like a much better way to do the self-driving cars because at least when it accidentally runs over someone, it's going to make a snide remark about it. Excellent. Johnny Cab, you are the wave of the future. Take it on, Leo. Our uh, next prize is the Leopold II prize, which goes to Cohagen, Richter, Laurie, and the rest of the colonial monsters who value pro- power and profit over people. What do they win, Gapwin? They win senator positions, funding, government regulation that makes what they're doing legal. I mean, all the stuff that they win now. Hmm. So more of the same. Got yeah, it. I don't need to oh. give them anything. They're already getting it. Yeah. Hmm. I wish I wish I got, got paid for this. Anyway, uh, <laughs> our final prize is the X-Men Irregulars Pride, which goes to Quado and the rest of the uh, mutants. Uh, for their the Martian mutants for their fighting good fight, uh, but not Benny. He he was kind of a tool. Uh, what do they win, Gepwin? They win the same slightly problematic representation thing that you get for the X Men because while it's a nice stand-in for any general othered group that you want to represent uh, for like civil rights things, making your sort of othered group like hideously ugly by our modern standards always leads to a little bit of yeah when you're dealing with this stuff and like in the case of the x-men they literally regard them as a separate species which leads to some problems so you know uh straight white people should stop writing social commentary i think is my point well if that happens then well hollywood have to let other people write social commentary is that is that a loud gap one no don't think so Oh, not that I've seen. <laughs> Dang it! Well, maybe maybe the time of uh, uh, whatever century Total Recall takes place, and we'll have got to the point where they can. I'm depressed now, Gepo. Take us away. <laughs> yeah, this is supposed to be the fun part of the show. Thank you all for Dang joining it. us and prizes and whatnot here on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. fun movie yeah i really liked it i'd forgotten how much i like slightly older action movies like i'm not gonna be one of those like oh they don't make good movies anymore people but i think we have lost this kind of like this shouldn't really work on paper but everyone tried their hardest and made something that actually does work kind of movie yes it's like one it's one step up from so bad it's good it's like this should be really bad but it's not yes it's actually pretty good huh we don't experiment like that anymore in modern Hollywood. Well, uh, maybe maybe we should become movie producers and experiment. Yeah, that would be fun. <laughs>
So I got like ideas for like ten movies. So if you ever do become a Hollywood producer, get one. Uh, give me, give me, give me a, give me a call. All okay, right. we just need like a couple billion dollars in capital, and we'll be good. All right. Um, if there's any billionaires watching the show, we have uh, a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> give it. Yeah, you know, leave a comment down below. <laughs> Okay, uh, next week we're going back to Star Trek the Animated Series. Uh, something that, that arguably we should have covered before because the episodes are all played out of order on various medias. But now we're going to be hitting uh, Star Trek the Animated Series, The Time Trap. Yes, yeah, so we're going to get trapped in time or somewhere. Aren't we already somewhere? trapped in time? Hard to get out no, of it. And the, the endless expanse of time go marching ever forward. Like a predator or a companion, depending on who you talk to in around Star Trek lands, yes. <laughs> yeah. So this is, is something about the space Bermuda Triangle. I think they literally call it the, the like, something triangle. Yes. <laughs> so wasn't it just a few episodes back where they're like, like, so in this one bit of space, every so many years, a spaceship goes missing. Let's go there right at that point in time. Yeah. Except... Now it's just like, oh, just spaceships disappear all the time now. Now they do it again. They're just really, really trying to get rid of this ship. <laughs> so uh, who did Kirk piss off to uh, you know, get this, these death assignments for? I, I don't know. I don't know. Anyone, probably. You've seen the way he talks to admirals. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, the, it's not that the, the admirals are evil in Star Trek. It's just they really don't like Kirk. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. All right, so we're already running long, so... <laughs> Next week, we've got Space Bermuda Triangle, apparently, on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, the search for another space pothole. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix, and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, Please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs>